Hello and welcome to another episode of our podcast from the Blue Earth Summit, a movement and community driving positive action for our natural world. In this series, we'll bring you some of the highlight talks and conversations from our first summit in Bristol in October 2021. In this episode, how clean is our air? By 2050, the UK aims to be a net zero economy. That means there's a balance between the amount of greenhouse gas produced and that that we can remove from the atmosphere. I think it's fair to say that that seems a little while away. The world is most certainly caught up in an ecological crisis, the chance of unthinkable climate damage is potentially only around the corner, and as well as the damage to our surroundings, what's also huge is the impact on people. In the midst of this global disaster, hundreds of millions of environmental refugees will be left without homes. For campaigner Ashok Sina, things must change. To make the world an eco-safe setting, we must decarbonise our streets. With lethal levels of pollution in many places, Ashok intends to drive a greener society, a safer society and a cleaner society. If you believe in Ashok's vision too, strap on that helmet and hold on tight. We all know why we're here, don't we? We're here because the impact of human activity has been so great over the past hundred years, in particular since we've been extracting all those fossil fuels that Tim talked about and uh, all those other extractive industries, uh, the food supply chain has had such a profound impact on the world around us over the past couple of hundred years that we now face the twin existential threats of the climate and ecological emergencies which threaten the very existence of civilization as we know and understand it. And I'm going to labor that point for a second because I think it should never be gainsaid. What are we talking about? We are talking about hundreds of millions of people who are on the front line of climate change, principally the world's poorest and most vulnerable, who over the course of this century, but not just them, are at risk of losing their lives or livelihoods. We're talking about hundreds of millions of people becoming environmental refugees because of aridification, desertification, extreme weather, floods, storms, extreme heat. We're talking about the kind of insecurity and warfare and violence that will result when hundreds of millions of people are destabilized, are starving, have nowhere else to go. And if that isn't climate chaos, if that isn't catastrophe, if that isn't a threat to human civilization, as we know and understand it, then I don't know what is. But, but, and you know, we all know this to be true, otherwise we wouldn't be here. And I say this with in all humility and respect for those who are on the front line of climate change right now, for whom this is not a joke or an opportunity. We do have an opportunity now, an unmissable opportunity to do things that we should have started decades and decades ago, to retool, re-equip, reconfigure, reorganize our society through dealing with climate change, the climate emergency and the ecological emergency to create a better standard of living, a better world, a more prosperous world, a more equitable world, a happier world along the way. But this is a one-shot deal because the challenge that we face from the climate emergency and the ecological emergencies are essentially irreversible. And we only have the next decade to get on to the right pathway. So our job today, our job today is not just to talk and to listen. We must do both of those two things, of course. It's not just to go to the stands and think about the partnerships that we can create 
Okay, it's got to be more than discussion. We have to walk out of this room. We have to walk out of this room at 12 o'clock today that much better informed, that much better equipped, that much better motivated to impel forward that societal transition, a transition that will be of historic proportions unseen before in the history of humankind to create that better world that we're all looking for. So no pressure then, hey? Okay, and my job is to talk to you about how the humble bicycle and the humble tricycle and the adapted cycle and the e-scooter and the e-bike and all these other so-called micro-mobility solutions, but principally the cycle, can play a critically important role for material and carbon reduction, but also cultural reasons in propelling that transformation forward. Okay, so let's, uh, let's just think about the, 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 the challenge that transpresent, uh, transportation presents us for a second. Now, we all know we need to decarbonize the United Kingdom. Fine, cities in the UK are the biggest single source of our carbon emissions, actually the biggest single source of our consumption and all of the knock-on effects that has for the world around us. Transport is the single biggest source of climate emissions, certainly in London, and probably in all of, the, all of England's cities as well. So if we're going to decarbonize the United Kingdom, we have to decarbonize our cities. If we're going to decarbonize our cities, we have to decarbonize transportation. Right, now bear this thought in mind. The single biggest source of carbon emissions in London within transportation is from private motor cars. So until and unless we get a grip and on that source of emissions and eradicate that source of emissions, we will not decarbonize our cities, we will not create the zero carbon cities we can and must create to deal with this challenge. Just bear this one statistic in mind. I'm not going to flood you with, the, the, with statistics. Just bear this one statistic in mind. In London, a city of about 9 million people, 3 million journeys are made every day in a car that could easily be cycled. They're a distance that could easily be cycled up to 3 miles. And these are journeys with 1.6 occupants on average, unencumbered, to use the ter terminology. That means no luggage, significant amount of luggage, no significant amount of shopping or whatever is being ca uh, carried. Now, just imagine how much carbon we could save if those journeys were replaced by a bicycle trip or an e-bike trip or public transport. So that gives you the, the scale of the opportunity that we have before us. What we have right now as a result of all of that car use in London is we have lethal levels of air pollution that is bringing people's lives prematurely to an end. We have a situation where the roads, where are, which should be places where children can play and, and hang, hang out and meet their friends, or instead their rut runs. Our urban spaces are blighted by congestion and noise and all the economic consequences that come from that. People are leading inactive lifestyles. Sedentariness is causing an enormous toll on people's lives, their life expectancy, the number of well years they will live. It also costs the NHS an enormous amount of money, and our urban spaces are grotty and, and uninviting, unappealing. However, if, if we can create a situation where our streets become safe and inviting for people of all ages and abilities to cycle for all of their everyday journeys to the school, to the shops, to the cinema, to the football club, whatever it is, then 
that will have an incredibly powerful impact on our city. It'll help to clean up our air. It'll help people live active, healthier lifestyles. It'll return those streets to the people so that they can be places for communing once again and exploration for our children once again, helping with their psychological development. And we can turn our urban spaces into vibrant, attractive, buzzing places where you want to be and go, not just get away from. So that is a transformation that can be achieved no, in no small measure by moving away from the private motor vehicle towards the cycle and those other forms of micromobility as well. That is what we call climate safe streets. And our campaign called Climate Safe Streets is to persuade London's decision makers, that's the politicians and people in other sectors, that they can and must take every action needed to decarbonize London's roads by 2030. And I'll come back in a second to what that means. But why 2030? Why 2030? Because 2050 is a, is a date we all have in our minds, don't we? It's when the UK is committed to achieving a net zero economy. Okay, 2050. Now, why 2050? Well, if all of the countries of the world were to follow that pathway, we would all have a 50-50 chance of staying below the danger threshold of 1.5 degrees C of climate heating, which has been set by the, uh, the countries that came together to create the Paris Agreement uh, six years ago. Do you think that 50-50 is a good enough chance? I don't. I don't want to be looking at my kids. I don't want to be looking at people on the front line of climate change right now. I don't want to, when I'm in my dotage, be looking at the next generation and say to them, do you know what? We thought the equivalent of a toss of a coin was a good enough chance for you to avoid the, the cataclysmic impacts of climate change and the ecosystem collapse. I don't like those odds, and I don't think you should like those odds either. And I don't think we are meeting our responsibilities to future generations if we live with those kinds of odds, which is why 2050 isn't fast enough. And it's why we think that 2030, come 2030, we need to make some big inroads, really big inroads, to the total carbon emissions of this country. And there's another practical reason for, for, for going faster as well, particularly when it comes to transportation. And that is because it's actually got to take a lot of effort and a little bit of time, say, to decarbonize housing, to switch away from gas. Think of the whatever, 20, 24 million households are in this country, most of which are using gas. It's going to take a bit of time. Then you've got the harder to abate industries still manufacture cement manufacturer. We need to buy ourselves some time. We need to get ahead of the curve here. And by switching away from private motor vehicles, which can be done very easily and very quickly, we buy some time and we get ahead of the curve. And that's why we think that our streets in London can and should be decarbonized by 2030. Now, how do we do that? What does that look like in practice? Well, okay, in a nutshell, it, it means doing stuff like the Dutch do, or the Danes, or people in other places like Seville who are doing fantastically well, and have done so fantastically well. Paris, to reduce motor vehicle dependency and give people the opportunities and the wherewithal to get onto their bicycles. We call it going Dutch. And in fact, in 2012, we ran the UK's biggest ever 
cycling campaign called Love London Go Dutch, and we persuaded the then mayor of London, Boris Johnson, to replace the blue paint, so his approach to making cycling safer, and that's, by the way, is the biggest obstacle to people cycling, fear of collisions, fear of getting hurt, fear of being killed. His approach to making cycling safer was put down some blue paint, and of course that didn't really work. But we persuaded him to ditch that and to adopt the Dutch-style approach to infrastructure, proper protected cycle lanes, and also put in schemes in various parts of London to reduce motor vehicle traffic, low-traffic neighbourhoods, they're called, put in cycle tracks, 29-mile-an-hour speed limits and so on, which were called Mini Holland. And he named that after our campaign. And this is a £100 million programme, it was at the time. And it's not often that, as a small campaign group, you win £100 million of investment, in, which is named after the campaign that you run. And now, today, well, actually last year, Boris Johnson, as Prime Minister, is rolling out 30 more million Holland projects across the country and is setting the same kinds of standards through, the, uh, through his active travel programme, the government's active travel programme, that need to be reduced, these need to be reduced in, uh, reproduced in cities around the UK. That came from us the work that we did, and why am I saying this? Not, not, not for kudos or the praise or approbation. No, because it was delivered through people power, like Hugo said in his presentation earlier. We're a grassroots organisation. We've got 20,000 members and supporters. We've got local activist groups in most of London's boroughs. We've got hundreds and hundreds of people working on the ground. And it was those people that delivered the weight of public opinion and the weight of public mobilisation that persuaded Boris Johnson and all the candidates in the 2012 election to t adopt those Go Dutch uh, principles and that, that Go Dutch approach. And then four years later, we did exactly the same with Sadiq Khan and got a promise out of him, which he delivered to triple the amount of protected cycling space in London, to give every borough the opportunity to have a livable neighbourhood and to take the most dangerous lorries off London streets, or at least start to do that because lorries are disproportionately represented in the statistics of impacts with cyclists and pedestrians and cause most of the deaths and serious injuries. But the point is here is that it was people power. And our city is changing, and other cities in the UK are changing because of people power. And that was supported generously with uh, some of the people uh, who, are, who are in the, in the room today, or in the, in, in the building today. Okay, so people power, fine. Shifting the politics. What do we want the politicians to do? This is actually quite hard, and I'll come on to why it's quite hard in a second. We want the politicians in London to do four things. First of all, mass reallocation of road space and priority on our roads to cycles and walking and other forms of micromobility. I mean, taking space away from private motor vehicles, taking priority, our junctions, the traffic lights away from private motor vehicles and giving it to people walking and cycling. Sounds good, sounds easy. It's not, I'll come back to that. So that we have a high quality excuse me, cycle network in London by 2030. We're going to get one by 2041. That's the mayor's plan. It's not fast enough. Accelerate it and achieve it by 2030. Second, invest in public transport massively. People think, and you're right, if you think London's got a world-class public transport system, it has. If you live in the centre of London, if you live in inner London, go to outer London, and you may have to go a long way before you can access some public transport. And this is, this is 
This is actually more than putting more buses on the street. This is making it interest. Oh, sorry, making it attractive for people to go from their cars into those buses. So, Transport for London, for example, are thinking about putting in USB chargers and information systems into the buses, so that you get some of that feel that you would have had in a private car in the bus, not to replicate the experience, but to to make it a more attractive one to to bring people out of there. Their cars. So we have to invest in public transport and invest in it in an innovative and creative way. The third thing, and this is where new technology and new systems really give us a great opportunity, is to make sure everybody in London, and I'm talking about London, this London cycling campaign, it applies to other cities too. Make sure everybody in London has access to a smart mobility solution nearby. That means an e-bike. For hire an e-cargo bike, an e-car, an e-scooter for those times when only motorised transport will do, because sometimes you do need motorised transport. And the fourth thing, and this is the most unpalatable one, all the other ones sound、uh, attractive because it's pro- providing solutions, it's providing the supply side. This is the hard one. We also have to look at the demand side. That means smart road user charging on our streets, charging people for use. Of their motor vehicles on the streets, including EVs. I'll come back to that in a second. <coughs> including EVs, so that we can reduce the demand for motor traffic and also create the money that is needed to invest in more sustainable modes of transportation、uh, and invest in those buses and invest in those cycle tracks. Now, EVs. This is a really important point. We've done some numbers, and I know Transport for London are doing some numbers. I know people think that EVs are the, well. People not in this room, I'm sure. I know a lot of. People think EVs are the solution. Just switch from petrol vehicles to electric vehicles. Bob's your uncle. Those carbon emissions are safe. Not true. In the future, maybe. But if you think of all of the energy that goes into producing an electric vehicle, it's more than that produces that is needed to produce a, a, an internal combustion engine vehicle. That at the moment, certainly in Europe, is still predominantly produced from dirty energy sources. Then you've got all the pollution and the impacts from the extractive industries that are providing the raw materials, the rare earth metals, lithium, cobalt, and so on, that are needed in the batteries and the electronics of the EV. An enormous environmental impact. Still better than having a petrol petrol car, absolutely. But if you take the average energy mix, electricity mix in Europe, so you're putting that electricity into your EV. And look at the total life cycle,、uh, carbon impact of that EV versus an,、uh, a petrol vehicle. The reduction in carbon emissions is between 17 to 30 percent. So 30 percent max. And we won't be able to gen- manufacture and sell the number of EVs necessary to replace all the cars in London with electric vehicles come 2030. So EVs are not the solution. If we are therefore going to reach A net zero in London by 2030. This applies to every city in the UK. We can't rely on simply substituting the existing car fleet with EVs. We have to have a mass mode shift to walking, cycling, and public transport. And guess what? We get the massive payoff of a healthier, more efficient, more、um, equitable society as a result. Okay. Now, this again. I talked a moment ago about this not being easy. It's politically challenging. That's why you need mass mobilisation of people to provide the political cover for politicians to be bold and adventurous, so that they don't have the fear always of losing out of the ballot box. But it's also a difficult sell at the society level as well. I'll give you one example. In London, there's a borough called Ealing. You may well have heard of it. It was quite far ahead of the curve, putting in low traffic neighbourhoods, cutting out the rat running from their streets. 
You could go in, you could go out in a motor vehicle, but he couldn't run through. You'd think it'd be a good thing. It is a good thing. There's data from the University of Westminster that shows that collisions have gone down, air pollution has gone down, and you can see on the streets that people are happier. They're using those streets. They're doing more things in them. The cycling and walking levels are going up on those streets, especially. But the level of discontent from people who used to go through use those streets as a rat run, and also the temporary increase in motor traffic in the uh, roads around those low-traffic neighbourhoods, which will evaporate, as we have seen time and time and time again, was such that Ealing Council was subject to thousands of people demonstrating outside the town hall saying, pull out all of these low-traffic neighbourhoods. And guess what? The council leader got his job. A new council leader was put in place. They pulled out the low-traffic neighbourhoods. This is a question of hearts and minds as well as politics. And we have to work so hard at the community level to win over those hearts and minds. And that's a challenge for all of us to, to roll up our sleeves and, and be involved in. Now, a couple of final points. First one, there's a phrase that we have. Um, there's a phrase we have in cycling circles, cycling circles. It's called Build it and they will come. So build the cycling infrastructure and people will, because it makes it safe for you to cycle, they'll come, they'll use it. And that is true. Wherever we see this cycling infrastructure in London, people are cycling on it. Great. But which people? It's largely people who already have the wherewithal to cycle. Just imagine, if you live in a council block right next to a wonderful piece of cycling infrastructure, but you've got nowhere safe to park your bike, you can't lug your bike up the stairs, you can't fit it into the lift, you're not going to be cycling. You're not going to use that piece of cycling infrastructure. If you're poor and you can't afford the upfront cost of a bicycle, you're not going to cycle. If you come from a community that is not used to people cycling, where it's a, you, you might feel a bit of an odd fish to get on a bicycle and get around because of whatever cultural pressures, you're not going to cycle. So we have to do something to make cycling inclusive. And I might add, we might have to do something to make this movement that we're all part of inclusive, because I was at the back of the stage when Hugo was talking, and the only black face I saw in the room was somebody doing the cleaning up. So we have to make our movement and everything we do more inclusive. That's why London Cycling Campaign is doing a lot of work uh, on a few projects, uh, one of which is called Cycle Buddies. Please go to the, the stall outside to meet my colleagues, Lucy and Stuart. Cycle Buddies is a matchmaking scheme where we match up people who are already cycling, but with people who want to cycle and want to cycle more, but lack the confidence or like the advice or the support, the encouragement or the friendship, and we put them together. And these two people, the, 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 these two buddies, the experienced and the inexperienced cycle, cyclists, go off and they do some route finding and they make some journeys together and they have a happy experience. And it's resulted in hundreds and hundreds of people in London now cycling for the first time or cycling more. And we can really scale that up if we had the wherewithal and the investment to do so. And the second thing that we're doing, <coughs> back down at the community level, is working with all of those BAME groups, in particular in London, who realize and want to be part of this historic transformation that we are seeing and are trying to see effect in our city. And it's so important that we leave no one behind in this transition. We also need all of those communities to provide the political cover and the political support that is needed for bold and effective action to promote cycling in their communities too. We can't do it without them. So this diversity and inclusion program 
is incredibly important to us. So we're putting a lot of effort into it, working with black, the Black Cyclist Network, working with Cycle Sisters, working with Muslim cycling groups. I had a fantastic conversation with, a, with someone from a Muslim cycling group the other day when she related how they started up this group 18 months ago and then just this summer went on a big ride to, to Windsor Castle and the jaws dropped on the guards outside Windsor Castle when they were met with a hundred or more, however many it was, Muslim women in their hijabs or whatever, headscarves or whatever they were wearing. You can imagine. You can imagine what, well, maybe you can't, but you can, I can imagine what must have been going through the minds of some of those guards then. But that's so critically important. We can't leave any of these communities behind. And that's a, a piece of work that London Cycling Campaign is doing to help and support these communities uh, with whatever uh, wherewithal we can provide to them. So, here's my final point. Now, I've talked a lot about cycling in terms of its carbon reduction uh, opportunities, in terms of public health, in terms of air quality, in terms of our cityscape, fine. But I think there's something deeply cultural also about the need, the opportunity to switch from private motor vehicles to bicycles. And I'm reminded of this every time I watch the football and at half-time, the ads are full of car ads. So, so when, you, when, you, when, when you think of your house, let's say, when you think of your house and you think of how it's heated, it probably doesn't matter to most people what the bit of kit out of the back is that's heating the house. They want it to be a green piece of kit, of course, but if it's a ground source heat pump or something else, whatever. The house is warm, it's dry, and it's green. Fantastic. When you think of your electricity, you don't, probably don't really care where that electron has come from, so long as it's green. Your life isn't changed. The lights still go on. The computer still works. Everything is as before. But the car, that's different. Look at those adverts at halftime in the football. They're not sold to you on the basis... The cars aren't being sold to you on the basis of their attributes, their technical capabilities. No, they're sold to you on the basis of lifestyle and persona and emotion and the kind of person you are and the kind of person you want to project yourself to be. Well, the bicycle... Moving away from a car to a bicycle is also a statement. It's also about the kind of person that you want to be. It's also how you want to project yourself and how you want to set an example to your, to your family, your friends, your fellow community. And when people look out of the window and they see that visible change, nobody notices the solar panels or the ground source heat pumps, generally speaking, but you look out of the window and see that change in your streets, streets that are filled with people cycling or scooting, or on adapted bicycles, where there were previously large amounts of motor traffic. There'll still be cars there, of course. That is a visible sign of the transformation that we as a society and we as a culture must make. The way in which you are going to internalize that transition, that deep kind of impact that it will have on our lives and needs to have on our lives is symbolized for people like me, by looking at those streets and then seeing them full of people cycling and seeing how happy they are. So if you buy into that, and I hope you do buy into that, uh, I hope you'll uh, agree that it's uh, critically important, not just for the climate, not just for, for the ecological emergency, but also for our souls, if you want to put it that way, that we cycle our way to climate-safe streets. Thank you so much for your time and attention. Mm -hmm.
We hope that conversation's inspired you and given you some proper, actionable insight. Please look out for the next episode. And if you haven't signed up for the film versions, please visit the Blue Earth website at blueearthsummit.com. Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.